0: Internet travelers, and welcome once again to the before and after show. I'm still your host, MJ Smith, and join me once again this week uh, is Robert Del Tour. Hi. Um, if you haven't listened to the show before, what we do is each week we take a film or set of films that we've never seen before uh, and we talk about what our expectations are for that film or set of films and what we think we will get out of it. Then we go and watch those films, and we come back and tell you what we actually thought, whether or not they lived up to our expectations, whether or not uh, they completely fell apart within 15 minutes. That's called foreshadowing. <laughs> uh, so the, uh, if you listened to last week's episode, you know that this week we're, we'll be talking about the 1982 film... Blade Runner and uh, the 2015 film The Martian, which are both directed by Ridley Scott. But before we get into that, are you working on anything or watching anything this Uh, week?
1: Working, I am putting a good six hours after my eight-hour workday into my notes for directing this web series that we're shooting this weekend. Uh, It's going to be a monster of a shoot. Uh, I took a combat scene that was written in four words, which were battle, and then battle some more. And I turned it into six pages of action and dialogue and added to the uh, already large amount of work I had to do. There you go. Uh, but I did find some time to uh, watch Big Hero 6 again. Oh, okay. Which I really thoroughly enjoy. Gosh, that movie's good. I think it's super underrated. I think the visuals are incredible alone. Just watching the movie on mute would be entertaining still. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's. I watched that and then I watched The Muppets again for some reason and Last Man on Earth again.
0: Okay, I um, think that Big Hero 6 is one of the most thematically complex Disney movies that has come out in the last, like, five years. Definitely. it's Because so, it's like, depression, and... How to deal with grief and loss, and also kind of sciencey stuff. Like it's, it's, that movie's really good.
1: Yeah, they did a really good job of knowing who they were aiming at with the movie, and Mm -hmm. then hitting it every time. Yeah. So
0: yeah, there's some like there's some things in the third act that are kind of hokey, but it doesn't matter because I'm not the target audience for it, so it's not hokey to the target audience. Well, and they also
1: (laughs) did such a good job of investing you in the characters in the beginning, like they're supposed to, that you were willing to forgive it.
0: Yeah yeah plus that villain is dope yeah that's such a cool like villain power yeah um i also watched the muppets Mm. and i liked the second episode actually a lot more than i liked the first episode
1: i uh, may or may not have missed my hulu payment so it cut out halfway through the show um so i need to fix that but uh it did feel a little better placed yeah time around
0: and the script seemed a lot tighter, too. Like, the jokes seemed like they were better, and they were more in line with Muppet sensibilities. Yeah.
1: I wonder if we actually did see a true pilot for the first episode It as seemed opposed like to a it. reshot one.
0: It seemed like it. So. Especially after how much I laughed at the second episode. Like, um, even uh, my, my fiance skipped the first episode and we watched the second episode together because she figured, hmm, how much nuance could there be in the Muppets? Right. <laughs> and, uh... She was right, and I was kind of telling her about the pilot, and she was like, that sounds awful, and, like, I wouldn't have enjoyed that, but Mm. she was cracking up in the second episode, and so I think I'm going to stick with it for now, because they've had one awful episode and one great episode, so I don't know.
1: And it's the Muppets, yeah. They can pull off anything if they just remember that they're the Muppets. Yes,
0: which it seemed like we got in episode two.
1: Yeah, I did just watch Muppet Treasure Island a couple weeks ago because that's one of my favorite films ever.
0: I don't think I've seen that as an adult.
1: It's uh, it holds up. If yeah, you, if you saw it as a kid, I think if you watch it as an adult, you're kind of like, okay, why are we watching this? <laughs> but as a kid, I was, you know, I knew all the songs. Still. Yeah, it was, yeah, it's great.
0: Uh, Tim Curry's so good in that movie. Oh, fantastic. I remember I've loved Tim Curry since I was a kid, and I don't know what I love him in from when I was a kid.
1: Yeah.
0: Maybe Muppet Treasure Island, but I feel like my memories predate that. And anything else that I can think of that had Tim Curry in it, you I should probably have shouldn't have seen when I was a child. Maybe Clue. No, I didn't yeah. see I, Clue was an episode of the podcast. There we go. So I didn't see that until I was an adult. Um
1: maybe you were just a bad child
0: maybe was he the voice of nigel thornberry in the wild thornberries he could have been
1: i feel like he voiced something that wasn't he the
0: monster in ferngully maybe oh that's i think you might be right i think so yeah i think i may have known him from voice work and yeah. stuff
1: he's got a very distinctive voice yeah
0: yeah because i've never seen rocky horror so it's not like i was watching that when i shouldn't have been yeah good job parents that's
1: still now is when you shouldn't have seen that yeah that's still right now
0: yeah it doesn't seem like i would understand that movie
1: i know
0: yeah i watched i forgot what i watched oh i actually watched a couple things um but I only want to talk about one. I started the first episode of a six-part miniseries on HBO called Show Me a Hero. Okay. And Show Me a Hero stars Oscar Isaac, who uh, people will soon be very familiar with as he plays Poe Dameron in the new Star Wars films. The film buffs will know him as Lewin Davis from the recent Coen Brothers movie. Or the guy from Ex Machina that wasn't the red-headed guy. And, and so it's this... Uh, it's the six-part miniseries that's a an adaptation of a nonfiction book called "Show Me a Hero," and he plays Nick Italian last name, who is a city councilman in Yonkers, New York. And there's this sort of um, there's this housing initiative that's being developed, where the city needs to build two hundred units of low-income housing. And they kind of don't have room to expand, so they have to put it in a a neighborhood or a couple neighborhoods, and none of the white people want it in their neighborhood. And so it became a big thing, like, to the point of my understanding of the actual events, to the point of, like, riots and murders. (laughs) Um, Yeah, and and so he was a city councilman that became the youngest mayor in the United States. He became mayor when he was 28 years old. Yeah, and... So the first episode is strictly his rise to becoming the mayor. I really like Os- Oscar Isaac. I think he's a really good actor. I don't know how he'll be in Star Wars. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if I've said this on Mike or not. I just think that he has a very naturalistic style of acting. And acting in a big effects-heavy blockbuster, I would say, almost dictates that you act a little bit bigger than he- he's known for acting.
1: It's easy to get lost in that kind of film.
0: Yeah, yeah but he's he's super good on the on the TV show uh one thing is they're like you should run for mayor against this six-time incumbent and they kind of like make a big deal about the fact that the the current mayor has been uh elected six times you know it's kind of like Uh, If you're from our hometown, Harvey Hall, here. Like, he just kind of, no one challenges this guy. He's just kind of mayor by default.
1: Mayor for life kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Um, And so he's like, well, I'm going to be the one who does it. You know, underdog story status. And cut to the mayor, and it's Jim Belushi. Okay. And I was like, hold up. (laughs) Wait a minute! What are you talking about, movie or miniseries? Because it's like serious, like racism and like zoning laws, Belushi. local local political drama, yeah. and then Jim Belushi. It
1: fits right in there, just perfectly in line with his career. He's
0: not too bad in it, but it was jarring to say the least. Like no one else was available to play this character, it had to be Belushi.
1: We could have got Jim Carrey.
0: Yeah, I guess that's that would have been worse. But man, it super caught me off guard. Um John Bernthal, uh also known as Shane from The Walking Dead, isn't it? Okay. And he's got a super thick New York accent and that really threw me off off.
1: I saw him in something else where he had a really different accent and I wasn't ready for it. I can't I can't place it, but
0: cuz they showed him and I was like, "Is that him?" And then they showed a farther away shot and mm-hmm. you couldn't really tell that it was him. And so I kind of thought it was the guy that played Ted on How I Met Your Mother because he had the he has the same hairstyle okay. in this movie, so I was I spent a very long time trying to figure out if that was him until they went to a close up and it was certainly him. So yeah. random random cast, but it's pretty good. Uh, it's super compelling given what it's about. Um, because I feel like. A six-hour miniseries about local politics from a small New York town could be really bad.
1: Yeah, but at least it's called Yonkers. That's true. I mean, at the very least, in the city council meetings, will be entertaining this. City of
0: Yonkers? It's true. So. It's true. Um, Yonkers plays a big role in the book World War Z. Okay. And... Um, I don't know if you ever played that movie game where someone names a movie and then you have to name a movie that starts with the last letter of the movie title.
1: I have not. That sounds intense.
0: Yeah. Um, So if someone ever saddles you with a Y by saying like Detroit Rock City or Dark City, Mm. you can say Yonkers Joe. I don't know what that movie's about, but I know it starts with Yonkers because I worked at Blockbuster for almost a year and I saw it on the shelf all the time. There you go. Yep. So that's those are my Yonkers tales.
1: We're just bonkers for Yonkers.
0: That better be the slogan of the city. Yeah, so we'll see how it goes. I'm actually like pretty excited to watch the, the next episodes, which it doesn't seem like it should be. Um, I guess that guy, Oscar Isaac, does a lot of projects that shouldn't be interesting but are.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, he was in a movie called A Most Violent Year last year. Okay. And it's just, like, about the politics of the heating and gas industry in New York. Of course. Well,
1: that is the pinnacle of storytelling, really. Yeah. Most human narratives can be told through that lens.
0: Yep, I agree. But, mm-hmm. And my understanding is no one knows why it's called the most violent year, because it's, it's all talking.
1: Well, I don't know.
0: Yep. Um, So we're going to take a quick break, and we'll get back and also talk about a film whose title doesn't really make any sense. And we're back. We're here to talk about uh, Blade Runner and the martian and we're going to start with blade runner um because it's the earlier film now neither one of us had seen blade runner before and uh do you want to sum up your expectations again
1: um my expectations were to see ridley uh using this film to process uh grief and emotion and how humankind may not be defined by the biology of it, but rather by our understanding of the universe around us.
0: Okay. Um, my expectations were that I was going to hate it. Yeah. Uh, um, to to sum it up, uh, we had a, in the last episode, which you should listen to, we had a long discussion about Ridley Scott and we, um, I, I'm not the hugest Ridley Scott fan because I don't think he really fills any of his uh, movies with that much emotion. hmm um even though i think he's a very technically proficient filmmaker yes um which i think is is sort of a criticism you hear a lot of him and uh blade runner is considered a classic by uh most you know film buff circles and you know kind of right up there with alien i think yeah yeah. blade runner also notoriously has seven different versions we said four in the last uh, episode, and it's seven. Um, so what we did is we decided that we would watch one version, um, we would watch two versions each, and we would watch uh, we would both watch the theatrical version, mm-hmm. and then you would watch the, th- the what's called the final cut from 2007, and I would watch the director's cut from 1992 or three. I think three. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's talk about the common one first. Uh, we had very different experiences with the theatrical cut because I watched it first before I watched the director's cut and you watched it after you had seen the final cut. Right. Okay so what did you think about the theatrical cut of Blade Runner?
1: I think that the theatrical cut put me to sleep after 15 minutes. I understand. (laughs) It was uh it was painful. I uh I get what they were trying to do different from the final cut because the final cut introduction sequence there's a, a good 15-20 minutes where I just didn't care if an atom bomb dropped I didn't know <laughs> who I was rooting for I'm like okay and I, I understand why people would like that cut better but I couldn't engage with it and I just lost it. With
0: the final cut? Or with Well
1: okay. With both. Okay. But, got it. But uh, I found the final cut painful to watch. I found the the uh, theatrical impossible to watch. Okay.
0: So. Got it. Got it. Um yeah, so I slogged it through the theatrical cut and I was upset. Yeah. Um yeah, it was it's not a good movie. No. Blade Runner's not a good movie, it's everyone. Not. Blade Runner is not a good movie. Um, at least the theatrical cut. Uh, I actually had a different experience with the director's cut, which we'll get to in a second. Um, so one of the things famously that happened with Blade Runner is the studio didn't like the ending mm-hmm. of the film. And they also thought that it was, uh, it was confusing or something. And so they added in this, uh, narration from the main character named Deckard, who is played by Harrison Ford. And so they have this, like, kind of rip-off 1930s noir voiceover. Mm -hmm. And it's the worst thing I've ever heard. Like, Harrison Ford sounds like he messed this up on purpose because he didn't want to do it. Understandably. um, Because the voiceover is terrible. Yeah. Like, the writing is horrendous. It over-explains the movie to a ridiculous degree.
1: It's almost as if Harrison Ford is sitting next to a 12-year-old kid on a flight, and Blade Runner is the movie playing, but the speakers in the plane don't work. So Harrison Ford is just telling the kid what's happening, and it's like he's making up a crazy story, (laughs) because it shouldn't be a story in a movie. Yes. And that's what the voiceover
0: is. Yeah, it's completely, completely separated from the events of the movie but also over explains everything that's happening in the movie it's the craziest thing i've ever seen i do i don't understand how this movie even made it to get a director's cut or the final cut like i don't understand how this movie made it beyond the theater or why we're even talking about it in 2015 with with just the theatrical cut existing it's horrendous like it's so bad um it looks great i will say that
1: See, I'll, I'll differ from you there. Um, I don't like the film stock that they used. Okay. It had way too sharp of a knee. It was way too crushed. felt too dark. I felt like the visuals would have been more impressive in person than they turned out on film. Okay. And I think it was it fell victim to a lot of the films that happened in the 80s where it feels immediately like I'm in the 1980s. Okay. I mean, it's supposed to happen in the far off future world that even we can't possibly imagine because it's so far away Los Angeles 2019 <laughs> with flying cars and giant pyramids and all that stuff where everybody speaks chinese which as we know that's where it'll be No well
0: it's a it's a mix of chinese spanish and some other language yeah. as we learn from the narration Um so the main plot is that there are these four uh robots which are known as replicants that have come to Earth. Uh, replicants are used as essentially slave labor for human beings on off-world colonies and off-world, off-world mining, mm-hmm. specifically. And there are these four replicants who are the newest, uh, most state-of-the-art version of the replicant that have come to Earth. And the reason they've come to Earth is because they've figured out that they only have a four-year lifespan before they are permanently disabled. Mm-hmm. And that's to prevent them from learning. So they come to Earth to go find the the man who makes the replicants and ask for more life, essentially. Yep. Um, Deckard doesn't know that, and so he's kind of on the case trying to track them down and kill them because the replicants are actually illegal on Earth. Yeah. Um. So with that story, this movie's too complicated for the story it's trying to tell.
1: It really is. It's a simple cat and mouse chase film with a little bit of existential what is life thrown in there right not
0: the other way around
1: yeah which is
0: what it tries to do and uh the theatrical cut fails miserably at it like it is it just shoves these themes down your throat worse than a christopher nolan movie like it's it's like everyone took it's like Ridley Scott took all the worst things about Christopher Nolan before Christopher Nolan made a movie and then made a movie out of just those things.
1: Yeah. I, I'll, I'll agree with you there. I, if I had to rate the theatrical version based on the little bit I was able to keep myself awake through, mm-hmm. I will place it below Cloverfield. Oh, and you hate that movie. I despise that movie. I think it's one of the worst pieces of filmmaking in the last century. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, I put
0: Blade Runner below that. Um, And so why I said that we're going to be discussing a movie whose title makes no sense. uh, So in the movie, the people who hunt replicants are called Blade Runners. Right. There's no reason for that aside from the fact that there was another book about knife smugglers called The Blade Runner and Ridley Scott thought that was a cool name, so he bought the rights to that book and called them that in the movie.
1: Ah, oh, that author must feel terrible. Yeah, oh, right? Ridley
0: Scott's buying the rights to my book!
1: It's for the title. It's alone.
0: for two yeah. words. Cool. Yep. Um, so, yeah, the theatrical cut is terrible. Um, Rucker Hauer plays Roy Batty, mm-hmm. or Ray Batty, who is the leader of the Replicants, and... I think he's the best performance in the movie. I actually thought he was super good in it.
1: Yeah. He's over
0: the top, but he makes it work.
1: It was a very difficult balance to go between the, I'm a really strong, powerful man who does violent things, and I'm also a toddler. Yeah. And I think that was a very difficult role to play, and I think he handled it very well.
0: Yeah, I think a lot of the replicants are more interesting than anyone else in in this movie.
1: Some of them I just didn't care about. Yeah. Because they, I, I feel like they got lost in who people were. So you'd be wandering around, and then by the time you're like, oh, that's who that is, mm-hmm. it was too late to care.
0: Yeah. Yep. So. I agree. Um, so the theatrical cut we both hated. Mm-hmm. Um, so we watched... Uh, different versions, different cuts. Yes. And I watched the director's cut. You watched the final cut. And the, the big difference there in both of those versions is that there's no narration. right? And that there is a different ending. Uh, it actually ends earlier mm-hmm. than the theatrical cut. The theatrical cut has sort of a tacked on ending that makes it happier than the original ending. Because it didn't test well or something. Um, so then when you get into the differences between the final cut and the director's cut, the final cut's a little bit more violent. Yeah. And the uh and there's a scene where Deckard has a dream about a unicorn and that's longer in the final cut than it is in the director's cut.
1: It is longer than it needed to be ever. Really? It it was so disconnected and so painfully tried to be important. Where
0: Because there's a callback at the very last scene of the movie yeah. to that. And and so the, the, the sequence is Deckard is asleep on his piano and he has this dream about a unicorn running through the forest. Mm-hmm. And that's about it. And then one of the cops that he works with is constantly leaving little trinkets made of like matchsticks or aluminum foil. Yeah, little origami
1: statues. Y- and
0: yeah. Stuff. Um, behind at the scenes they investigate, which seems illegal. but Right. Um, so the very last scene of the movie, um, Deckard sees a an aluminum foil unicorn. And that's supposed to let us know that Deckard's been a replicant the whole time. Yeah. That's what that's supposed to do.
1: And that now he's going to be hunted by his Blade Runner companion is what I got. And then, Like, they gotta run, and... What?
0: Yeah, maybe that's what the sequel is. Maybe. Because we're getting a sequel to Blade Runner. Yeah. With Harrison Ford. Why? Why? So so you, you didn't like the final cut either?
1: I did not. Okay. Um, it's a movie that I have owned for eight years. It is a movie that probably won't touch my Blu-ray player again. Okay. I I, uh, I see why people enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. But it just again it fell into the the class of nineteen eighties sci fi that I believe dated themselves too much. Okay, and it just can't hold its relevance because it unless you wear parachute pants with big hair and stupid makeup and uh, of course as I established in the last episode. I despise the 80s. Okay. And
0: right. this was
1: quintessential 80s to Right, me. right. And I couldn't get beyond that most of the time. Mm-hmm. There were moments, uh, the rooftop fight scene where he's about to let Decker drop and he grabs him. You oh, know, yeah. Like, okay, I see what you're doing there. There's some good filmmaking in moments. Mm-hmm. But overall, the sound design was too loud most of the film. I don't know why people in the 80s thought synthesizers were a good idea for a film score, but I always felt like I was having to, to fight through the audio, the sound design, to get to the dialogue.
0: Oh, Interstellar.
1: It, yeah, it was very swampy, and it was like the, the dialogue was drowning in the sound mix. Okay. Which I thought they were trying to be like, oh, we're going to sell these really crowded scenes, and, and how busy it is, mm-hmm. and how difficult it would have been to hear. But it was that way the whole movie.
0: That's interesting. I didn't have that problem watching either version of it at all. Interesting. Yeah. Um, there were times where I did feel the soundtrack was a little bombastic for mm-hmm. what was going on on screen. But that's a big problem of a lot of 80s movies. Yes. Um, and uh, it, uh, the entirety of Interstellar. I had a much different viewing experience for the director's cut than you did for the final cut, I guess. I really like the director's cut of this movie a lot. Okay. Um, it's a completely different movie I think taking the narration out is I mean it's crazy the difference that I had that I that I experienced watching this movie without the narration Um, I thought it was paced better I thought that I could settle into the story more because I wasn't being read a bedtime story Um, because I didn't Feel compelled to pull my phone out and play this stupid rhythm game that I've been obsessed with on on my phone, watching the director's cut, like I did during the theatrical cut, because not every little thing was explained to me. Um, one of the first narration scenes has his has these uh, LAPD officers coming to Deckard to take him back to LAPD headquarters for the, him to find out that. These replicants are out and and basically get the synopsis of the movie. And in the narration, he explains that the language they're using is the common language of the city. And it's a combination of these three languages. And yes, Deckard speaks it. But no, he's not going to make it easy on these guys because he doesn't really like them. So he's using a translator. That's all explained in the narration. That all comes through if you take the narration out. yeah, Because... They're talking to him, and he's using the translator, and then they say one last thing to him, and he responds to them. So there's a clue in there that lets you know, it's, it's, the studio didn't have any faith in the audience, is why the theatrical cut exists, it's, and it's so frustrating.
1: It's almost as if you hired one of the most talented actors of that era to play a character, and he knew what he was doing. Yes. Because I got that right off the bat. Yeah. It was like, oh, he's just being yeah. Han Solo, right? Yeah, there.
0: exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Exactly. And so there are so many moments like that where I was like, this is the movie you should have released to Mm. begin with. Um, You know, we talked about it in the last episode that Ridley Scott is consistently screwed by the theatrical cuts of his movies. And I've never seen a Ridley Scott director's cut because as we established in the last episode, I don't like that philosophy of like, oh, I'll fix it on the Blu-ray. I think you should put out your best product in the theatrical cut. Um, and that should be the standalone. There are director's cuts I love. Uh, one of my favorite films of all time, Tombstone, the director's cut is significantly better than the theatrical cut. Um, and it's only 10 minutes longer. The director's cut of Blade Runner is the same length as the theatrical cut. It just doesn't have the narration. And it was so refreshing to me. It let it, it also let me um, settle in more. I noticed that in the theatrical cut, When there were a long silent bits, which there are a lot of in this movie, they were boring to me because I was so used to when Harrison Ford was on screen, having it narrated and having the quiet moments be have sound in the narration. There are just as many quiet moments with Harrison Ford in this movie as there are the other characters, but the theatrical cut doesn't let them be quiet. Mm -hmm. And so in this movie, the quietness uh, of, of the sequences is consistent. And so you're more accepting of it. I was way more okay sitting through them. I did fall asleep near the end, and that's because after a certain point it just becomes the same movie because Decker disappears for a long period yeah. of time. A long period of time.
1: Um, and it becomes a creepy, like, cacophony of weird dwarf toy things yeah. and awkward gymnastics and 80s haircuts. And- yep. Yeah.
0: I think thematically the themes land a little bit lighter, not much lighter in the non-narrated cuts. They're still pretty force-fed, which I think a lot of people mistake for thematic complexity.
1: Because they can find it. Yes. They don't have to go and read an article to understand what was happening. Yes. So they feel like they're all smart.
0: Yes. And so that's one of the things you hear when you talk about this movie is how complex the themes are. And it's like, well... Not really. They're actually force fed to you in the worst possible way. Mm. Um, but I would watch the director's cut again. And watching the director's cut made me kind of want to watch the final cut. I'll trade you. <laughs> I have all of them. Oh yeah. I got. I ended up having to buy the big everything Blu-ray for it. I did not want to, but I did. Yeah. Um. But I. I did. I did. If. If. I I saw the movie, I didn't like it as much as, you know, I'm told I should, but I saw the movie that people say this is in the director's cut.
1: I think there's a a lot of moments in the final cut where I was okay with it, Mm -hmm. and then there were a lot of moments when they disengaged me as an audience so much I just didn't care anymore. Fair enough. And then there were other moments where I was really repulsed by what was going on. Like, spoiler alert, Harrison Ford gets pretty rapey. Yeah, okay. Part. That's what I thought, too. Yeah, and, like, I was watching with my girlfriend, and she's like, uh,
0: what kind of movie is this again? It
1: was like, the kind that I didn't know this was gonna happen in.
0: Yeah. So. Yeah, he, he, yeah. okay, I was wondering about that, because it reminded me a little bit of the first time I watched Goldfinger, and I was like, no one told me he rapes a woman in this movie. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it was really
1: awkward and uncomfortable, and uh, I don't know how long it happened in your version, but it was...
0: It's a long sequence. It was
1: elongated. Yeah. In, in more ways than one.
0: <laughs> yeah, it was... That scene loses me... It lost me in both, because it's very quiet and very long. Yeah. Um, and very uh kind of off-putting. So yeah. it, it's kind of a three strikes on that one. I was i was like well when it started to happen in the director's cut i was like well i can i can look at my phone for this sequence yeah um and she's like kind of annoying to him too not to the point where what he did is justified at all no but she's also like oh you're taking a nap i'm gonna play the piano all obnoxious yeah um because she's a toddler though like that character is a right a, a replicant um I don't necessarily think the romance in this movie works at all. Not at all. Because, one, it's forced upon this poor woman. And, two, they just don't have chemistry. Um, You could chalk that up to the fact that it's two robots that are supposedly in love. But Rutger Hauer and Daryl Hannah, or not Daryl Hannah, Pris is the character's name, have really good chemistry. Yeah,
1: Yeah. it makes sense that they're having a relationship. Yes. Whereas, I, I... feel like they made the most human performances which i'm okay with that's a yeah Uh, that touches on the themes that i wanted where it's humanity doesn't necessarily mean you're organic it means that you're aware of who you are yeah um however if you're gonna try to have the hero of your film have a love story and i couldn't care if that person got killed right now yeah in his arms i'd be like cool like she was annoying yeah sorry
0: yeah exactly um I, I i uh after watching the theatrical version which i hated i was uh texting a friend of the show mike Morey, um mm-hmm. who gets a shout out in nearly every episode so i had to work him in somehow hey mike and he I told him that the only good thing that Blade Runner ever gave us was the Rob Zombie song "More Human Than Human." Yeah, um, and I still might think that way a little bit. Um, I think I think that that I see Christopher Nolan. Um, I see a film that influenced Christopher Nolan more than it should have mm-hmm. in this movie. Um, I like Christopher Nolan a lot. Um, but I think he's starting to let these Blade runner sensibilities run wild in his films. And it's getting to be a problem.
1: I would argue that Christopher Nolan uh, is falling for getting too successful too young. Yes. Uh, I think to be a really good director, you need a sensible amount of seniority and life experience. And if you start off really successful, which is great for them, like... Him and J.J. Abrams, that's awesome. I'm not trying to downput it at all. But you have to tread lightly that you don't mm-hmm. fall into a situation where you're making films that are good because you made them instead of making films that are good.
0: Yep. Kubrick Syndrome. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Oh, that just got me in a lot of trouble. <laughs> yeah. um,
1: I will say one more thing. Yeah. This film reminded me very much of one of my least favorite films, uh, 1981's Outland starting sean connery which i don't think i
0: know outland
1: it's uh it's a film about sean connery who's a police marshal on like a mining colony on jupiter where some for some reason people start shooting each other with just regular shotguns not Space shotguns, not laser shotguns. It's just like a double barreled shooting double op buck in space. And then when you get shot in your spacesuit, you explode. Which I Because saw, there's oxygen? I don't know. I just know that as an eight year old kid watching a film where a guy gets shot and he explodes in, like the spacesuit puffs up. Mm-hmm. Like in that Martian movie where the guy farts through the line and everybody puffs up. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But then it just gets filled with red goo because they explode. Okay. And I felt like the violence in Blade Runner felt like that. Which partially was because of the uh, infancy of the special effects Mm -hmm. around at the time. Mainly like when a character was shot in the back of the head. We see the front of the head open up (laughs) and the back of the head is completely fine. Yeah. Um, But also it was just super drawn out and uncomfortable especially mm-hmm. when pris is mm-hmm. killed i don't know yes that convulsion sequence yeah that was another one of those moments where i'm like okay we could go out and get a snack right now yeah we're gonna make a sandwich,
0: sandwich. yeah
1: this feels like it's 30 minutes of her just convulsing and then stopping and then convulsing again yeah
0: again. it felt like have you ever seen the buffy the vampire slayer movie no, I okay so Wee herman has a great death scene in that movie okay um, he plays one of the main uh vampires. Okay, so we have gotten far away from Blade Runner. Yes, man. Um let's, yeah. Uh, we're gonna get further away from Blade Runner and we're gonna talk now about the newest Ridley Scott film, which is a uh a sci fi film, uh heavy on the sci, mm-hmm. and that is The Martian, starring Matt Damon and uh Dumb and Dumber. Starring Matt Damon and Dumb and Dumber. <laughs> and uh troy from community headed into it we were both cautiously optimistic yes uh i think we can sum it up by saying that ridley's due for a hit yes and um it actually looked like he put some humanity into his film this time and do you want to start
1: i thoroughly enjoyed it Uh, i feel like it was the same f- Ridley that we got in Gladiator, mm-hmm. it was the tactful handling of human emotions, the incredibly technical filmmaking, all working together to take us on a story that, if you had said based on true events, I would have to go and look and see when I missed the Mars landing. Yeah, because I could believe it so much.
0: At, like from minute one, you're just like, oh yeah, this is happening. Yeah, this is, like this is a documentary yeah, essentially. Yeah, exactly. <laughs>
1: I was like, oh man, I don't remember reading about that, but I don't read the news very often. Yeah. And that is what he's capable of. Mm-hmm. And I feel like we finally got another Ridley film where you want to shake his hand and be like, good job. Uh, yep. The the visual effects were incredible. I mean... The amount of production design gosh. was just mind-blowing. I was like, oh wow, they put a, a better camera on the rover than I remembered to get all of those shots Oh no, that's a fake planet. Well done, well done.
0: Yeah, that's like Utah or somewhere. Yeah, what? Like the first shot of the movie, I was like, "This is in the world." Like, (laughs) not in not in a way that took me out. Just in a way where I was like, "How the hell did they make this look so alien?" But like, I mean, it looks like they shot it on Mars. They
1: really, it does.
0: It's nuts. I um, thought they
1: said a set of sent a set of re master primes on a camera onto the rover and just shot it, but they didn't. And, yeah, uh, props to the in every single person that worked on that film brought their A game. Yeah, it, and it was incredible.
0: Yeah, it's the best movie I've seen so far this yeah. year. Hands there wasn't down.
1: there wasn't a single character that I didn't believe. Mm-hmm. Uh, the little blonde radio uh, satellite controlling girl that was just doing the coordinates.
0: Loved her. She was great. She was so good. She was, I was glued to her in every scene she was in. I just wanted to watch her act. Mm -hmm. Do you think he means it like, are you kidding?
1: (laughs) Or like, are you kidding like that moment between those two characters was so good and so human yes so human and i think that they did such a great job of of nurturing those individual small relationships over the gap of this what three four year period Mm -hmm. that it is or however long it is they made these characters grow together and further apart in certain cases and everything felt organic yes the relationships that blossomed didn't feel forced. The relationships that maybe got a little bit further apart didn't feel forced. I felt like I was watching a documentary, and that it ended the way I wanted it to end. Yeah. So, yep.
0: Exactly. Um, I've been tromping at the bit to talk to this, to talk about this with you or with someone because yeah.
1: we saw it this together which was Great a mistake.
0: Great filmmaking. Yes. I mean this is this is why you know if if I can sound like a pull quote for a minute this is why people go to the movies. Yes. Like it's everything I love about filmmaking. Yes. Is is in The Martian. Just uh, the characters are super compelling. The story is believable for a sci-fi movie. Mm-hmm. It's it's um it's the most triumphant movie I've seen in at least a decade. Like I I was hoping that people would clap in my theater because I wanted to clap so hard at the end of this movie. I mean, it just, it's optimistic. It's it's hopeful and in a way that I don't think we get a lot of these movies like that anymore. Um, It felt akin to, like, the end of a good sports movie when, like, they pull out the win, even though you kind of know, you kind of know that that's what's going to happen because why would they make a sports movie about a losing team? Right. That's kind of how it felt in The Martian. Like, you kind of know he's going to be okay, but they do such a good job of like, is he going to be? Yeah, yeah of course. He's going to is he going to be? Yeah, of course. Yeah. And so it was, it was, it, every moment in this movie is earned, mm-hmm. but, like in spades.
1: It felt very similar to the way that I felt about the King's speech. Mm-hmm. I haven't felt so satisfied mm-hmm. by a success, even though this is on a much larger scale than right. being able to read a piece of paper. Right. It, the amount of humanity that went into those successes were something that you don't see in filmmaking every day anymore, yeah. and that's a tragedy.
0: Particularly a Ridley Scott film. Right. Um, I couldn't believe this was a Ridley Scott film. Like, I, it didn't, it felt... <laughs> it looked like one, but it did not feel like one emotionally. Yeah,
1: it just felt good.
0: Yeah, it's it, his best movie since Gladiator. Hands down. Yeah. Yeah man this movie was super good and i like what you said about the like the painstaking detail and the visual effects Mm -hmm. even at the end right before he's about to get rescued like the stuff they did to make him look super gross and skinny and like make his teeth look all messed up from eating nothing but potatoes for months like they there was no stone unturned in the making of this movie and it's it shows like the care that went into this is in every frame of this movie Mm -hmm. and you and you can you can feel it you can feel how much everyone wanted to make this movie as good as possible.
1: And we even missed about 380 frames of it.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Dude, and it technology. overcame that. Yeah, it did. I totally, like, that was not a thing I was yeah. thinking about the rest of the day. Yeah. Yeah.
1: No, I and it's definitely something that's a repeat viewing in theaters for me. Anyways. I, I want to see it back. again. Yeah. Um, even though I'm, like, swamped with work right now, yeah. I'm working 60 to 70 hours a week on mm-hmm. this thing and i'm like i can squeeze it in i can get in there
0: and, and yeah i mean there's a I'm, I'm ramping up to do a bunch of stuff you know um we'll get married yeah, is one of well, them but it, um, as far as films go i'm ramping up to do a bunch of stuff like uh next week we've got bridge of spies the new spielberg mm-hmm. movie and crimson peak and um you know there's a couple places showing horror films that i want to see because it's halloween um and then you got specter which is the weekend i get married so we'll see what i get around to that yeah um you know and then Right into Oscar season, which I try to watch as many of those as possible. I'm going to have to do some catch-up on, like, um, the indie Darlings from earlier this year, like a Me and the Dying Girl. I want to make it to see The Martian one more time. Yeah. Because it's such a good movie. I don't know if I'm going to like a movie more this year, is what I told you guys. And I still stick by that, and people have not reacted favorably to the fact that I don't think I'm going to like Star Wars as much as I'm going to like The Martian. And
1: And we kind of touched on that. I think it was a mistake for us to go see the movie... Together because there was this lull afterwards when I just looked at you and I was like, I want to talk about this, but I'm saving it for the show. Yeah. Uh, and you did mention that about Star Wars, and I have to agree with you there. I don't think that Star Wars isn't going to be great. I think it's going to be fantastic, and I think it's going to be something that has the rewatchability that A New Hope and Return yeah. and all those have. But as far as an individual film, not continuing and using nostalgia and stuff, just coming in fresh. I didn't even know anything about the book.
0: Mm -hmm. This
1: was a wonderful film. It's It's one I'm going to buy the day it comes out. I'm going to buy the deluxe version, and I'm going to download it on my iPhone, so if I'm bored somewhere waiting for a train, I can watch
0: it. Yeah, and I think one of the things that has over... Um, the recent ZoMG so people are lost in space. We gotta save them movies mm-hmm. is that you can watch it on a smaller screen because of the humanity that's yeah. injected straight through the heart of this movie. Um, Gravity is incredible. I love that movie. I don't think it should have been nominated for Best Picture. Um, it's a great, great, great movie. That movie can only be experienced. I saw that movie in IMAX 3D. I can't watch that movie on my tablet. Yeah. It's not gonna look the same. It's not gonna deliver that same experience because of I don't know if you saw Gravity or not, but it's so it's 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 an experience. It's a it's a reason to go to the movies and it's a reason why people go to the movies, and I thought it was great. And if you told me tomorrow, hey, Gravity's coming back to theaters and they're gonna release it on IMAX 3D, I would go see it in IMAX 3D again. Yeah. But that's the only thing that movie delivers is a fantastic roller coaster of a movie that's tense and makes you root for the main character but you just don't get the overwhelming sense of dread on a smaller screen that you do watching it in IMAX 3D. Interstellar's just straight up not a good movie because there's no emotion in it and it can't decide what kind of movie it wants to be whether or not it wants to be hard science or emotional and it tries to be both without ever reconciling one into the other. The Martian does that exactly and it did
1: such a great job and i feel this is where ridley really took the right path it was so easy to have this be a things blow up and mm-hmm. big huge visual effects spectacle film and engines fail and but you didn't he focused on the people mm-hmm. the very end the rescue itself isn't this massive maneuvering of ships and stuff which happens but it ends with two people reaching for each other mm-hmm. in the middle of the vacuum of space completely trying to
0: touch each other yes
1: human contact has not been had in 700 and some odd days however long yeah. it have been and that's all you want I didn't care if he zoomed past her as long as they touched yeah like I just wanted to see him get to touch another human being yeah and that was Ridley hitting the mark exactly yeah. what that film needed and that's gonna make it stand up over the decades where I think he failed with Blade Runner. Yeah. Because Blade Runner, I feel like its viability ended in about nineteen ninety nine when people went, Oh, we're not gonna be there in ten years, yeah. fifteen years, twenty, whatever it is.
0: And also the Matrix.
1: It, yeah. But if somebody told me today, Hey, by the way, the Ares five rover, you know, crashed and people and you know, there was a storm and they had to leave Mars, I'd be like, When did when did we get people up? Well, yeah, I mean yeah i guess we have the aries program is real and whatnot so yeah everything about it felt real yeah it's Um, the one thing that i had against this film sean bean lives
0: yeah what's with that i don't know but but they give him a fantastic lord of the rings reference that was one of my favorite moments of the entire movie that was fantastic It a little bit took me out but not in a bad way um that was that scene was pretty great um I, I think we would be remiss if we didn't touch on this incredibly tight script. Yes. Holy cow. Yes. Um, Drew Goddard is, that guy's in my book now. Like, uh, the last film he did was Cabin in the Woods. Um, I don't know if you've seen that. I know you're not a huge horror guy.
1: It's on my list. Now that I'm directing horror stuff, I've got a list of, of horror stuff that I'm watching. Mm-hmm. And that's number three, I
0: believe. Yeah. It should be number one. I, I mean, I don't know what number one and two are. but it's
1: The Night of the Living Dead and um, that one Bruce Campbell film.
0: Evil Dead? Evil Dead. Okay. That makes sense given the, the series you're working <laughs> yeah. on. Yeah. Okay. I'll allow it. But uh, yeah, Cabin in the Woods is a movie that I went in blind to. Um, I hope you will be doing the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I kind of saw, like, out of the corner of my eye trailers, I heard Joss Whedon had written it. And it had kind of sat on the shelf for a long time. He had co-written it with Drew Goddard, who wrote The Martian. Mm -hmm. And Drew Goddard directed the movie, too. It's not superbly directed, but it's serviceably directed. Um, And I kind of was like, I'm in the mood for, like, a horror movie. It was kind of when I was just starting to get into horror movies. Because I felt like I had, you know, I had uh, been through every genre except horror. Mm. And so I was pretty well-versed in every genre except horror. And I was like, well... If I want to make this a career, I better
1: do it sometime.
0: And so that was one of the first ones. That was probably my gateway into it. And I think I had a fantastic gateway into it because that movie's incredible. Mm -hmm. Um, That's not just one of my favorite horror movies. It's one of my favorite movies. It's so good. Um, And it it takes all the things that people um, love about horror that I didn't understand and explains to you in not a dumb way why people love them and made me care about why people like horror films okay and so i think it's a very good like if you don't like horror films you should probably watch cabin in the woods if you want to get into horror films Um, drew goddard and joss whedon had something to do with that and i think drew goddard had a lot to do with uh how tight cabin in the woods is and drew goddard has everything to do with how tight he's the only credited writer on this which is rare yeah um and It's such a singular voice Mm -hmm. and such a consistent voice throughout it that I'm so glad that he was the only writer because I think anything else would have deterred from it. It was
1: super succinct and there was so much science mm -hmm. going on and so much emotion and fairly decent amount of action for a good part of it. But I never felt lost in it. I always knew where I was. I knew where all my friends, the characters that we were going through, I felt close to all of them at every point, even though there'd be these huge nine-month-later gaps. Yeah. I didn't feel like, oh, I missed that. Yeah. Because the characters progressed together in such a gap that i felt Mm -hmm. like i immediately caught back up with
0: them and this movie we need to talk about it's massive oh it's huge it's it's a crazy scope it's Mm -hmm. it's way bigger than i thought it was going to be yeah um and it would i think in the hands of almost any other director they would have just gotten crushed under the weight of it and they would have delivered the story but they would have lost the emotion in it and it's crazy that ridley scott is the one that was able to deliver the emotion in a movie this this vast but he did it and i mean the movie ended and i was like oh that was a clean two hours and you and my fiance were like that was two and a half hours and i kind of still don't believe it. Like, that movie snuck in an extra half hour for me. Oh, for sure. Which never happens. Like, I I know the run times of my movies backwards and forwards when I go see them, and that is, like, something I might be a little too nitpicky on is, like, oh, that movie, like, i you know, almost every movie I say is too long. Mm -hmm. This movie, um, I think, might be too long, but I didn't know it.
1: I don't think so. I feel like every frame was supposed to be there.
0: Yeah. That's the other thing is I didn't know what I would cut, though.
1: Yeah, there's not a single moment I would change. You know, when the rover finds the rover team finds out that they have to, or the Jet Propulsion Lab finds out they have 15 days to build this thing, they were supposed mm. to have four months, and the team lead just turns around and he just looks at his group and goes, "Well, I need to change of clothes." Yeah, and you're just like, "That was so perfect." Yeah, let's never take that out. Yeah, uh, yeah. I, no, I think that if this had been a five-hour film, I'd watch it. Yeah. If this had been any less of a film, like any shorter, I think you'd be missing on so many incredible moments yeah. where you just, you get the pinnacle of filmmaking. Yeah. You get the emotion that you're supposed to feel. That's why, like you said, that's why I'm going to the movies. That's why cinema has become, in my opinion, the leading art form. hmm And this hit all of those moments.
0: Yeah, I, I agree. Um... So, I want to talk about two more things. Um, One, Matt Damon's performance.
1: Fantastic.
0: Holy crap. Um, I'm not, I wouldn't say I'm not a Matt Damon fan, but he doesn't get my butt into a seat immediately either. Um, You know, I tend to like him, but I don't tend to, like, go crazy over him.
1: Yeah, I have confidence in his abilities, but I don't, yeah, like you said, he's not a film carrier for me. Yeah. He's not Emma Watson. You put Emma Watson in anything, I'm mm. gonna go see it. Mm. But uh, Matt Damon, not so much.
0: Yeah. Uh, holy crap! Career best performance oh, for hands him. Hands
1: down. The the moment when he is lighting the heat uh, hydrogen. Yeah. That
0: was Just, so good. Yeah, when he forgets the, to account for the oxygen he's breathing out when yeah. he's lighting it. Yeah. And that
1: the the tool that Ridley uses there could be considered a voiceover yeah and it's funny to see how differently over these two films he handled voiceover because first off he set it up organically in the story whereas mm-hmm. the vlogs that he's doing he's, right. he's logging everything but serves the purpose of telling some incredibly detailed information
0: mm-hmm.
1: in a vignetted way that's his voiceover it's just they turned the a camera on during the voiceover session yeah uh and the little thing like which is actually how the jet propulsion lab was started just really succinct real world facts in a science fiction movie yeah that further grounded it and his performance of those voiceovers were incredible
0: oh man like talk about a film carrier yeah you know he's he's gotta be yeah like he's he had to step up and he did in the best way um And and there's to that point of the vlogs, I don't know if you picked up on this or not, because it was super subtle. They they did this like very good, like visual um, manipulation of you in this movie where uh, this uh, very harrowing intro. Mm -hmm. The intro is like super intense right out of the gate, uh, which like immediately lends yourself to being on this guy's side. Yeah. And it cuts to press conference on Earth with Dumb and Dumber telling everyone that the crew had to leave, but unfortunately Mark Watney has died. And what happens is it starts like you're watching a news broadcast and then very slowly pushes in and dissolves out of the television lines and you're in the room with them. Mm -hmm. And I was like, that was kind of neat. And then it's training you to accept that when he starts doing it with the vlogs mm-hmm. in the next sequence um because the vlogs start out and it's an even slower push in mm-hmm. to be in the room with him which uh, i
1: thought was a really cool way of grounding him to earth mm-hmm. cuz it was the same emotion the same kind of uh, vignette that they're using to isolate that this is being filmed mm-hmm. but by it taking so much longer, it really made the emotions so much more impactful. And to me said, that's how far away he is, is that we've got nothing else to do because we're on a planet all alone, but slowly zoom in. Yeah. Which might've been an unintentional meaning of it. Uh, and then they even used it again later with the satellite feed. Where mm-hmm. You've got the two people kind of joking about, you know, Matt Damon's character, not liking <laughs> the evac plan. Yeah. Uh, and then it, it just zooms in on the screen and then stops being a satellite photo. Oh, and yeah, 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 his yeah, yeah. rover driving across. Yeah, that's right. I forgot about that moment. So it was a really good way to set up a mechanism for mm-hmm. him to transition between the planets yes. eventually. Yeah. Which was cool. It was between newscast to present, between could-be-watching-the-vlogs-after-he-gets-back-to-being-in-the-scene-with-him-to-from-Earth-to-Mars. yeah. And he used the same mechanism each time and it never felt heavy handed. It was just beautifully done.
0: Yeah. It was, Oh man, this movie was so good. Mm -hmm. It was so good. Um, you know, I mean, and, and just like, like you said about the, like, Whoa, I'm going to need to change your clothes line. Like this world is so like comfortably lived in immediately. And like these characters feel like they've existed before that they had stories going into it, that their stories will continue after it. Um, that we're just kind of seeing a chunk of their life, mm-hmm. um, even though they don't actually exist. Yeah. And it's just a very colored-in world, but not in, like, a hokey way and not in a way that's very, like, heavy-handed or um, cheesy when it could be. Like, this movie could have been cheese ball all over the place. Oh, yeah.
1: Could have been... Group of guys that all went to college together, and some became astronauts, and some became jet propulsion mechanics. They ran NASA, and they all went in like a sports team, kind of yeah. slow motion high five film. And they didn't. Yeah, everyone came from different places. Yeah, the the character who needed to change of clothes, his uncle worked in the Chinese space program, and the way they tied in the the international science community felt very organic. Yes, because yes, the true. Chinese government and the American government not so friendly right, right. now. And they played on that. Like we, we can say nothing and get away with this. And the head of the Chinese space program is like, this is a community of scientists and we need to help each other out. And you're like, that was so human. And I love this. And then it just, the time magazine cover of everything felt like it was earned. Mm -hmm. Not, Oh, and now he's on a box of Wheaties for some reason. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, so is there anything that didn't really work for you?
1: You know, I tried to find something over and over again, and I couldn't find a specific thing that made me dislike the film. Mm-hmm. I will say there was one relationship that almost felt forced, and that's when Ginger Astronaut and and Bucky the Astronaut yeah. Slayer uh, kind of have their <laughs> little relationship with a kid. Yeah. Uh, but I'm still okay with that. Yeah, I'm like I felt like. We didn't get a whole lot of them, and what we got didn't say that wasn't possible. yeah, and then so I feel like that was the weakest storyline, but I still was completely okay with it and believed it. Mm-hmm. So if that's the biggest thing I could pick out, I'd be like,, Ooh, yeah, it's a good sign.
0: I, I agree. Um, I, my complaint is very in that vein mm-hmm. in that. The biggest thing for me is I don't think we spent enough time with the Hermes crew.
1: Yeah, I can see that.
0: Uh, Yeah. um, I don't necessarily want a director's cut that spends more time with the Hermes crew because I feel like this movie is a very good length. Yeah, I feel like adding to it might not be the smartest decision. Um, But I I just wish we would have used some more time in the two hours and 24 minutes we had to catch up with them Mm -hmm. because that relationship, I was like... Hang on, I feel like I missed a scene. Yeah. You know, for it, sure. it, it, it that was pretty jarring. Um
1: for me, uh And I
0: feel like they had bigger named actors in those parts than they should have. Yeah. Cuz it was like all of them were recognizable except the Russian guy. Cuz it was like the chick from House of Cards yeah. and the lady from Zero Dark Thirty and Michael Peña and Bucky. Like <sighs> it was it was so many people that you know that you I was wanted like, to see on screen. Yeah. Either.
1: Uh, see for me i was okay not having them for that huge chunk of time where we don't see them because it felt like i was grounded with the characters at nasa and i was grounded on mars and there in between
0: mm-hmm. and
1: until we break the contact and tell him hey he died yeah
0: i understand i okay choice. not
1: seeing him and yeah so it makes sense would i like to see a director's cut? probably not if there's a director's cut and he tells me he added ten minutes and it's all the Hermes crew, I'm gonna go see it. Yeah, I'd watch because that. that's the only part where I feel like there could have been more.
0: I feel like the one thing that's the one big emotional thing that's missing from that Hermes crew mm-hmm. is I think there could have been sequences of them dealing with the grief of losing Mark,
1: especially the captain. Yeah, uh, I think she did a very good job of saying I left him. Yeah, you didn't. You followed orders. I left him. Yeah. And I could have seen more of that. I yeah. feel like she's capable of performing it that way. I feel like she did a fantastic oh, job. Everyone's great. Yeah. They just don't get did. enough screen
0: time. Yeah. Yeah. That's my biggest complaint with the mm-hmm. movie is is in this, the massiveness of this film, they're kind of lost in the middle. I understand the choice because they're kind of lost in the middle. Yeah. In the context of the story as well. But I think as the audience, since you are giving us all the different perspectives, I think as the audience, we would have benefited from seeing them still stuck in the middle, dealing with the fact that they lost their comrade who Mm. you know they spent four years traveling to the damn place with them yeah let alone however long they were supposed to spend in the hab with them
1: yeah and you know when you're in an astronaut crew you train every day together Mm. for years yeah so these are best friends or mortal enemies and you know that's and i thought they really played that up with the jokes and the yeah disco music and the the little little things that felt like an organic world. Yes. Like, when you've got friends that you've known for a long time and you're with every day, you've got inside jokes. You've yeah. got little things that you know, Irkham so you keep pick on it. Yeah. And the fact that the first contact he gets to have with them is a series of jokes, I thought was perfect.
0: Yeah. And I think this movie does something that uh, I didn't know was possible, and that's be snarky without being cynical. Yeah. It did a fantastic job of, like, oh, yeah, we're got like we're kind of sarcastic, but also we're not unhopeful we're not bitter we're not mad at the world whereas i think a lot of like sarcasm and snark especially i I think in life and especially in films comes off as very nihilistic
1: and smug about it smug look at how good i am because i can be sarcastic about this and i don't really care whereas this was like like we talked about in the first episode where he's got to be overly confident and cocky to survive this mm-hmm. and i feel like the sarcasm the sarcasm was this is a terrible circumstance it's a defense mechanism so we're gonna joke about it yeah until we get past it
0: yeah it's all i can do yeah it's, like it's, it's either that or cry yeah yep i'm smiling because i don't want to do the opposite yeah exactly. so it felt
1: super realistic and it yep. didn't feel like i'm better than you and yes i really don't care about this person and it it's it really did feel like the whole world was rooting for this guy Mm -hmm. which i believe in the real event of an astronaut being stranded that would happen
0: oh yeah absolutely like you know how into it i would be if tomorrow they were like oh yeah we left one of those guys on the moon we thought he was dead but he's actually alive we're gonna go back and get him
1: let me go out and see if i got enough mentos and coke i'm gonna go get him yeah right you want to help him and you've and that's one of those moments that unifies us as a race of people, mm-hmm. not as countries or anything. It's the human race together.
0: Yeah. Do and you think that this is going to do something for NASA?
1: I sure hope so, because I'm sick and tired of NASA just pointing satellites at Earth <laughs> and going, look, it's warmer there. Look, it's colder there. <laughs> oh, polar bear. Well, Mexico got a lot of trash picked up in this city. Oh, national... S- what, space? What? No, yeah. no. We just have things in space. We don't look at space. Well... If you look at how quickly we went from launching an airplane to having a person on the moon, we should be much further in space. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we we should have been on Mars ten years ago. Yeah, with people, uh, I feel like we should be on our way to Titan. Mm-hmm. And I feel like a lot of people have lost interest in science. Yeah, uh, and I think it's a good portion due to the fact that we got so much technology so quickly that the generation after us are so in like involved with their texting and everything that they're not realizing what went into making those devices. Mm-hmm. They're not inspired to go out and explore anymore. Whereas we grew up poss- possibly the last generation of you can go and explore places. Mm-hmm. Even if it's that dirt field two blocks away and you ride your bike out there, there was some exploration. Right. So when I look up through a telescope, I'm like, oh I wonder what's out there. I think most of this generation are going to experience it through this film. And hopefully that brings NASA, a new generation of people interested in it, new funding, and we can make this movie be a preemptive documentary.
0: Yeah. Um, I also think at the risk of editorializing on the podcast, which is something I try to actively avoid, I also think that we've put a bigger divide between um, people of faith and people of science than Mm -hmm. we should have. Um, And I would say that's kind of on both sides. Um, Yeah. And so I think I think there's a very us versus them mentality mm-hmm. which isn't conducive to people in like conservative faith-based areas like what we lived it, what we where we live yeah. um, who might be interested in science when they hear like oh no they're trying to tell us god doesn't exist and then that kids like well I don't want to do something that tells me god doesn't exist and like they're immediately disinterested in science right. because of that and so I think I think that has a lot to do with it too because I feel like we're having those conversations a lot more than I think we ever have. Yeah. Um, and I don't know if it's helping us either way.
1: And I think that was handled very well in this film as well. Mm-hmm. And the control room was like, are you a religious man or, or do you believe in God? And, he, and he's, yeah. You yeah. Know, I am one of the heads of NASA. Yeah. And, you know, there's something out there. I can't tell you what it is. But yeah. yeah,
0: I do. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, well, I...
1: we need all the help we can get.
0: Yeah. I was super into that, actually. I yeah. was like, way to be, like...
1: Yeah. You could job. have been like, Pfft, no, I'm not stupid. I'm head of NASA. Yeah. And you were. not You were tactful. You went into that point that I feel like, uh, as a scientist... When you start out and you start learning all these things, you're like, oh, yeah, there's no God. I'm so smart. Look at the universe that I made. And then you get to a point of so much understanding that things start to not make sense mm-hmm. again. And you get into M theory and sub quarky and string theory yeah, and stuff. Super and you're just like, stuff. Is, is that God right there? Because I think that is. Because otherwise, I don't know how I'm not I can't a banana that. right now. Yeah. And, and I think we're reaching that as a community of science, not necessarily as individual scientists, where you're kind of having to accept the fact that there is some kind of uniform consciousness in in the subquarkian particles that vibrate along the dimensions in between the dimensions that we exist in into long linear strains of thought that don't belong in this podcast um, science is getting there and I think that they touch that mm-hmm. i think I that the top people in nasa are probably questioning yeah what they believe yeah you know, and I, I thought that was very well done very human
0: yeah i thought it was a very nice touch also to like show kids who grow up in very like you know conservative faith-based mm-hmm. households like you can still have that and be into science like that's not a bad thing yeah um so yeah i i think i think this movie's more important than people think it is and i think more people need to see i it it had a good weekend but i'm worried that it's going to be underseen like i'm worried that this movie isn't going to be around in a few years except for a few groups of people singing its praises like i i think it's weird because it had such a big weekend but i feel like its praises might only be sung as like a sleeper hit yeah and that's kind of weird to me
1: this this should be a film of the decade yeah and I hope it is. Yeah. Uh, for me, it is. For yeah. me, it's it's a film of a lifetime so far. It's already working its way into my top 10. It's I don't think it's going to pass Jurassic Park because mm. that was so much uh, of a gateway to filmmaking for me. Yeah. But as far as now that I do work in the film industry, now that I'm especially starting to direct, this is a film that I'm able to go... They're still doing that. Yeah. They're still making films the right way. And yep. this is what it's supposed to be.
0: Exactly. And I think something that it does have in common with Jurassic Park is a sense of wonder.
1: Yes, absolutely. I, I did. It felt Spielbergy in that sense where there were those moments where you just lean back and you almost disengaged from all emotions and you just look at it and go, wow. It, not only visually, but just the emotions and stuff that you're making me you feel through a box with some pixels on it yeah like, awesome yeah it was great
0: man that movie was so good oh yeah um i think we've exhausted everything we have to say about it well, we're probably um, gonna start
1: fanboying if we continue.
0: yeah it's it's gone I've, I've actively tried to not be in that but it's hard for me not to do that because yeah. holy cow this movie's good Go see it. Um, Yeah. Yes. Uh, Spoilers for the end of this episode. That's what I'm going to say to go watch this week because I haven't watched anything better. Um, Thank you for joining me on this uh, journey uh, through uh, dystopian sci-fi and hopeful sci-fi. Yeah. And I'm glad the hopeful sci-fi won out. It's about time. Yeah. You can follow me on Twitter at before and after pod. That's at before the letter N after pod. Uh, because of Twitter naming conventions, you can shoot us an email, um, telling us that we shouldn't be involved with film because we don't like Blade Runner. at uh, before and after show at gmail.com. Uh, big show announcement! I will be at the, uh, Back to the Future, the Time is Now event with Sinertane Drive-In at Sam Lynn Ballpark in Bakersfield, California, on October 21st, um, uh, I'll be out there with former guest uh, Corey Tyndall, and we're going to be interviewing uh, the people behind Sinertane, hopefully, and also maybe the goodly doctor himself, Mr. Brown, uh, Dr. Brown, and uh, I am very much hoping to get Mayor Goldie Wilson on the podcast because... I think that would be fantastic. So we'll we'll see. Um, but come out, join us. It's, uh, I think, $15. And you get to watch Back to the Future in uh, a baseball park. And they're going to have a DeLorean there. They're going to have screen-used props from the movies. Um, they're going to have the best snow cone you've ever had in your entire life out there, uh, provided by Ice It Up. They didn't pay me to say that. It's just the best snow cone I've ever had. You can like us on iTunes, uh, subscribe, like us on Facebook, uh, comment on SoundCloud. Let me know you're listening. Share this with your friends. Uh, thank you guys so much for listening. I'm coming up on a year of the show, which is insane to me. Um, Robert, thank you once again.
1: Thanks for having me. I'm always uh, always glad to help.
0: Yeah, uh, come by again. Uh, we'll have to do it again with hopefully something just as good. I feel like we've set a huge bar. Yeah, we have. <laughs> um, it's going to be tough. Yeah. Um, I'm
1: looking at you, JJ.
0: Yeah, until next time, uh, go watch The Martian. Definitely. Go see it twice. Yeah, yes. And, and buy two tickets, even if you go by yourself.
1: Do
0: do do do